0: chapter 20, so if you would please turn with me to John chapter 20. We are going by, through verse by verse, Genesis through Revelation, and we just happen to be now in the gospel of John. We're winding down next Wednesday, if everything goes according to plan, we'll be finished with the gospels. And in two weeks, we'll start in the book of Acts. Before I get going on this this study here, I would like to start the teaching by telling you a story. And it's a true story. It's a firsthand account story that was told. And I think it it blends well within the message that we're going to be sharing tonight over the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is a pivotal uh, point in the scripture because it's everything to us. Without the resurrection, we're hopeless. We have to believe in the resurrection. And there's a lot of emotion tied to this chapter, as you can imagine. And the story um, goes, two years ago or so, I was in Uganda, and I'm the missions pastor, so a a lot of my stories have to do with being on the field. And so he's like, he's always talking about his mission trips, and it's just a plug for you to go. and Uganda, obviously, is near and dear to my heart. I love the place. Uh, two years ago, at the end of our trip, we go to Pastor Fred's living arrangements, and it's a hut. Most of the people in Uganda, where we, where we go in Gulu, northern Uganda, most of the people live in huts. That's, you know, grass roofs, clay, or whatever on the outside, just a hut. And he had several huts, he owned several huts, and at night, and I'm telling you, we're kind of out in the middle of nowhere, and you can see every star in the sky, every star. And we're doing a campfire, we're kind of concluding our trip, it was a wonderful trip. And fires are really big for community, they like to sit around fires and tell stories, and that's how um, they get stories out to their children, they sit around the fire, the campfire. And that night, they were going to bless us with some stories, and there were testimonies. And one of the testimonies, the first testimony, I believe, a girl came out of one of the huts that Pastor Fred owned, and she came out, and he says she has a testimony she would like to share. I never met this lady before, but it was somebody that Pastor Fred loved deeply, and he was taking care of her and making sure her needs were met She was probably around 20, 22 years old, somewhere around there. Um, And so she came out, and she was talking about just 10 years prior how the war um, had taken a lot of the, the, especially the young kids as child soldiers, and she got caught up into that. She was around 10, between 10 and 12 years old around there when she was taken as a child soldier by Joseph Coney and the LRA, the Lord's Resistance Army. And they do wicked things, just absolutely, it's demonic, absolutely demonic. Well, she got captured as one of those child soldiers, and they line them up, and they tie them with ropes, all these children, 10 years old, 8 years old, as you can just imagine. And they make them walk all the way up into the Sudan, which is, I mean, hundreds of miles. And they take them out in the bush, and then they do whatever they want with those kids, and so she was one of them. She was on that train. and She was going up uh, with all those other kids. And if one escapes, then somebody else, if they find out, they'll kill you too. So there's that pressure of nobody escapes or somebody else is going to die. Well, anyways, as she's up in the Sudan and time passes, months, maybe even several years pass. she finds a way to escape. And she's just a young teenager, and she has to try to find her way back down into Uganda as a 13 or 14 year old girl at this point and so she tries to find her way back and it just takes forever she even has an account of coming face to face with a lion and they told her and they tell her if you ever come face to face with a lion out in the bush act like you have a bow and arrow because the poachers have bow and arrows and the lions know that and they'll take off well, sure enough, she comes face to face with a lion. Here's a, like a 14-year-old girl. And she acts like she has a bow and arrow, and the lion takes off. But this, I mean, she's sleeping out under the stars. She's trying to find food and water. She's making sure she's not captured by anyone. And as several years pass, she comes rolling right back on into Gulu area where she's from. And lo and behold, her family and her friends have giving up hope on her or having a funeral and she walks in on her funeral and i would sit there i was just like what on earth after several years her family finally gives up hope is like she must be dead she's gone and the exact hour that they were having her funeral That's when she comes back to them. And how many emotions can go through your head at that point when you're hearing this girl tell you the story? And then you start thinking about what if that was your child? What if that was your loved one? And you were having a funeral for them. And as the funeral was going, and they're lost, and he's given up hope, they actually walk in on their funeral. What kind of emotion would you have? You would have an emotion that you couldn't even put words to, right? Who knows exactly what they were thinking? But I could just imagine tears were going. They finally have hope. But they had lost hope prior to that, and now the unthinkable had just happened. Their daughter walked in on her own funeral and she's alive. And as I enter into this story in John chapter 20, it's sort of those kind of, I'm I'm thinking of it, it's like that emotional scene. Because this is now, in 19, he's crucified and he's laid in the tomb. And all his closest disciples and his friends are just mourning. They had just lost their Lord. And they didn't know exactly. I mean, on hindsight, like us, we can look back and say, well, it was prophesied. We know the story. They were right in the middle of it, and they didn't have what we have, that knowledge, that he's going to be risen, he's going to come back. And I just could imagine their their tears. I mean, you're dealing with losing Jesus himself. Those three years he was on this earth doing his ministry were like no three years ever on this planet. Those three years as he was doing his ministry, God was actually walking on the earth. Can you imagine walking with God? He equals love. He's all compassionate, all merciful, full of grace, and full of power the meekest man and he can he's healing people all over the place he has compassion for the poor the widow the prostitute the tax collector and he and he's just going straight down into the into the culture and just messing with it a little bit because man had made it so messy and he's just getting in there and he's just in there and he's and you're walking with him for three years. Could you imagine walking with him for three years? You would never want to let him go. And then he goes to the cross and he's just brutally murdered, brutally murdered. And there's hardly anybody there that walked with him. They all left because they thought that was gonna happen to them. And when he dies, can you imagine just for those three days how depressed you must feel that this, the most amazing thing that ever walked this planet, you turned your back on. And for three days, you're just in that depression, that, that just gut-wrenching feeling. And that's where I find the disciples at. That's where I find Mary Magdalene, Peter, John. All these disciples, all their friends are right there, so emotional, extremely emotional, and they've pretty much maybe lost hope, and then we get chapter 20, and there's a reason to rejoice, and so I want to start in chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, so we're looking at Sunday, Jewish calendar, the first day of the week is Sunday. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So Mary and John, the writer of this gospel, they were the last to hang out with Jesus while he was on the cross. Mary was the last one to leave Jesus. And now we see she's the first one to go to his his tomb. Mary loved Jesus. Mary was the woman that Jesus cast seven demons out of. And anytime you see Mary and she's listed with other women, she's always the first one in the list, meaning she was probably the most predominant one. She was the leader of the ladies. Mary, if we can get anything out of this passage about Mary, is her worship unto Jesus. Just look at how emotionally attached she is to Jesus, and you can just tell that she truly, truly, truly worshiped the Lord. She gets to the tomb, and she sees one thing, that that big old stone, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich tomb, by the way, for somebody rich, and they put Jesus in there. This big, huge stone was rolled away And she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. So we know that that other disciple who's so fast and so awesome is no other than the, the writer of this letter, John. He always referred to himself as the one that Jesus loved. He knew his place before the Lord, right? And he is probably a little bit more athletic than Peter. History tells us Peter was a big old guy. And John wants us to know that he outran him. I'd probably do the same thing. So he came to the tomb first because he is so fast, and stooping down, looking in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. So in the Greek, the way this works is, it looks like that John, he comes, he sees the tomb, the big stones rolled away, he looks in, he sees the clothes, but it's a casual look. He doesn't analyze what's going on, he's just probably like, what in the world? It's happening, so he starts contemplating and thinking, meditating upon what he's seeing right now, and here comes big old Peter behind him, right, huffing and puffing, and he comes and he breaks in, and this is what it says. Then Peter, Simon Peter, came following him, went into the tomb and saw the linen clothes are lying there, and the handkerchief had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in the place by itself. And this in the Greek says that he came in and he starts analyzing the situation. And this is where we get the word, when it says Saul, we get the word in the Greek is theero, where we get the word theatered. And that means you are really analyzing the situation. John didn't really analyze the situation. He saw at first glance but was sort of confused. But Peter comes in and he just starts looking around trying to find the evidence, what's going on, what do we got going on here? And it says the clothes were lying there, And the handkerchief was there, it was around Jesus' head. And the way this, there's a lot in the Greek that doesn't really necessarily translate over into the English. But the way it sets up is, so if you were to walk into this tomb, there would be a a rock slab. And that's where they would lay the body of Jesus on. And they would have wrapped him up nicely in, in 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 a white linen. Wrapped him up like a mummy, if you will. And then put a handkerchief over his face. And so when they get in there, they look on that slab and there's no body, but all they see is the linens that were there. And in the Greek, it says they were nicely lain or they were not undone. They were still folded up like if somebody had been in there and it just evaporated out. And so when he's in there, he's just like, what? And so he starts analyzing this. And there's a lot of skeptics out there saying, well, somebody stole his body. But who's going to take the time to unwrap a person anyways? you are just going to get the body and take off. But if they even did unwrap it, are they going to wrap them back up nicely like there was a body in there? No. It was like he evaporated out of it. When he was resurrected, he just kind of left the clothes there, and his body left with it, his soul. Okay. And the other disciple, or then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw, and he believed. So right there, he just realized, he just recognized, Jesus is risen. He was the very first one to believe, to understand the gospel as much as he possibly could. But then it says, for as yet, they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. So you might be confused by this. Like, what do you mean they didn't understand, they didn't know the scripture that he was going to rise again? And it said right there before that in verse 8 that John believed. John was looking at the facts in front of him. He was saying, this has to be a resurrection, But he wasn't smart in his mind when it came to the prophecies of the Old Testament. He wasn't making the connection from the Old Testament to what he has seen. But he is saying, the facts are before me. He is resurrected, I believe. Because Jesus said it multiple times. Yet Peter, he doesn't necessarily have that belief that John has. And that's interesting to me. Because Peter, if you go back to Mark chapter 8, do you remember that crazy story of the blind man of Bethsaida and they take, Jesus takes that blind man out and I'm sure the disciples were with him, he take him out of town and he wants, he wants to see again, this blind man. So Jesus takes him out of town, he just does the craziest thing, he spits on his eyes. And Jesus says, what do you see? He says, I see things like trees moving. And then Jesus touches his eyes one more time and he can see, it's like a two step process. And then he goes on to share something about the kingdom of God is going to happen, that he is going to die, he's going to rise again, and three days later, and Peter gets all bent out of shape. And he's saying, that is not going to happen. But, but just previously that Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, because Jesus asked him, "Who do you think I am?" And he says, "I'm the Christ, or you're the Christ." So he knew him to be the Christ. Yet when Jesus told him the plan, which was an account from the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, we see that Jesus had to die. He had to die, and he's going to rise again. Peter just could not connect the dots. He's like, you are the Christ, but you're not going to die. I'll make sure of it. And then Jesus turns around and rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. You are of the things of man, but not of the things of God. See, you think that Peter would have figured it out right there, and he would have never forgotten the fact that he said that you are like Satan to me right now. If Jesus said that to me, I would pretty much try to register that in my mind and not make that mistake again, and believe that he's going to rise again on the third day, but he still forgot. To see that blind man, it was an object lesson, if you will. We know Jesus had compassion for that man, but it was an object lesson there's a two-stage healing process. Why two-stage healing process? Because Jesus had the power to heal him right out of the bat. I mean, if you look prior to that event, Jesus is calming the winds and the waves by saying three words, peace be still. He's healing lepers, right at, like instantly. He's raising people from the dead instantly. What, he did not have the power to, to fix this man's sight in the first try? Of course not. Or of course he did have the power, excuse me. But it was for a reason, and that reason was, as that man, the first time that Jesus spit on his eyes and said, what do you see? I see something like trees. He couldn't see the the total picture. That was Peter. You see the Christ, but you don't really see the Christ. You don't fully get this, do you? And here's Peter still in that position of not fully seeing who Jesus Christ is. He doesn't have full sight like like that blind man's sight was fully given to him by Jesus. And Peter walks out and he's still confused. He still doesn't know. I love those accounts in the Gospels where Jesus is just walking with his disciples and he's just showing them object lesson after object lesson, this is what's going to happen. And then he's still so patient with them when they don't get it. And here they are at the scene where they should get it, and they're just not getting it. Verse 11. But Mary stood up outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she she stooped down and looked into the tomb. So this weeping is a wailing. That gut-wrenching, in-the-bowel sort of cry That's what we're talking about here. She had that sort of emotion. She just could not believe that not only did they kill my Lord, but now they've taken his body, and I don't even have a place to go and honor him. And she just can't make sense of it all, and she's just literally giving a gut-wrenching cry. If you ever heard a Middle Easterner cry, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, they really go at it, and they get it out of their system, right? And she is just going at it, with her cry, and then she sees two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. So she sees these two angels. What happens next? And then she said to her, they said to her, these angels, woman, why are you weeping? And she says to them, she actually responds back, because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Now throughout all of the Bible, it seems like when people come into contact with angels, they're, like, they're so terrified, they just drop to the ground. And Mary, her eyes are focused on the Lord, like, I can't find my Lord. And she's sitting here having a conversation with these angels in this tomb. And when she had said this in verse 14, she turned around and saw Jesus there, but did not know it was Jesus So Jesus and these two angels are hanging out at the tomb. And Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So she doesn't even know it's Jesus. She can't even recognize him. I don't know if he's hiding behind a plant or he just doesn't look like he did before. I don't know. But this is interesting, because he says this, Jesus said to her, Mary. And then she turns around and says to him, Rabboni, she recognizes him as Jesus. She, can, she recognized when Jesus said her name. She recognized it. She couldn't recognize his voice before, but man, when he said her name, and I don't know if she, he had a certain way of saying her name, or the way he said it, is just, she's like, wait a second, only my Lord calls me by that, just like that has that voice for my name. And she recognized it, and she drops down and gives him the highest respect, Rabboni, my master, my teacher. Right? And in the the Gospel of Matthew, because all four of the, the Gospel accounts have a story about this, and in that account, Matthew says that she just clung to his feet. It's absolutely clung to his feet. This is when i connecting the Uganda story to this story right here. I just could not imagine like if one of my kids, I thought were dead, came home after several years and I'm having the funeral for them. What would my response be? Right? That emotion that's so overwhelming. And here's Mary and it's, I'm sure it's the same amount of emotion, the same, and if you were there, you would be like, what is all the commotion about? She would probably just, going crazy tears and weeping and overjoyed at the same time probably a little bit of confusion and Jesus says to her do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father but go to my brethren and say to them I am ascending to my father and your father my father and your father and to my God and your God We have the same Father, we have the same God, that's what he's saying to her. And so Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples and said, excuse me, and Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. So he trusts Mary Magdalene with the most important news given to anybody first. Of all the disciples, he could have chosen of all the people, he picks Mary Magdalene. He casts seven demons out of her. It's a woman in that culture. Which is usually, you wouldn't go to the woman first in that culture. And he chooses her as the favored one to go share the good news. Tell the good news. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but when it comes to communication, how do you get it out, it's important. And like if President Barack Obama wants to communicate, he'll he'll read off a teleprompter. If I want to communicate, I might grab a telephone. You know, if my great grandpa wanted to communicate, he'd probably use a telegraph. But in Jesus' day, if you want to communicate, you tell a woman. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You going to get the word out. He could trust Mary. Mary, you take off and you give this most important information to my disciples. You get out there and you do this. And she goes and she takes off and she runs with the most important news and she delivers it to them. Then that same day at evening, in verse 19, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. It's important for you guys as Bible students to pick out certain words and catch the theme, what's going on, and you have to kind of put yourself in the position, and in that situation, why would they lock themselves behind a door and meet together? Why? Because of fear of the Jews, that means their lives were in danger. That was the scene during this time, it wasn't happy-go-lucky. It wasn't easy going for this early church. Their lives were at stake. And they were hidden behind a locked door. And then Jesus walks on in and says, peace be to you or shalom. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I bet they were. I bet they were so ecstatic. And Jesus said to them again, peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I'm also sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them and received the Holy Spirit. What did that look like? I wish I could have been there to see this. What's it look like when Jesus breathes on you and says, receive the Holy Spirit after he was just risen from the dead? (laughs) And this is the same word in the Hebrew, it's ruach. And that's when God breathed the spirit into man in Genesis chapter two, verse seven. This is the same word in the Hebrew that's used in Ezekiel chapter 37 when they breathed it on the dry bones. And the dry bones came to life. And in the Greek, it's pneuma, means spirit. And Jesus is breathing on them. And I believe at this point now, They understand the gospel in its entirety because the resurrection had to happen for them to have the full understanding of the gospel. I believe in this account. This is when we're seeing salvation for the disciples, a total salvation for them right here. When he breathes out of them and says, you understand I'm resurrected. You believe in the resurrection. I came to conquer your sins, and I've resurrected on the third day. I've defeated death you see me in my entirety, you understand this. Receive the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening on this Sunday night, just three days after he was crucified. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now some people are like, what did he just say? So I'm supposed to go out and forgive people's sins? Are you capable of having the Holy Spirit in you as a Christian going around and saying, I can forgive people's sins? No. You don't have the ability to do that. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can. But we have the message to go out to proclaim this and say, only God will forgive sins if you have a repentant heart. We are given that responsibility as a church to go out and proclaim this news. The gospel, if you're going to give the gospel, you have to give the element of repentance, Because without repentance, there is no salvation. And so you somehow have to lead a person to get them to understand you're just simply not good enough on your own merit to earn salvation. It's absolutely impossible. There's not one person. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all marred by sin. And when you recognize that, then you see your need for a Savior. That's the gospel. And that he died and he rose again three days later, defeated death. You will defeat death. So at this point, And like us who have received Christ, we've received the Holy Spirit in us at the point where we believed this and truly took him for his word, that he will be our savior, he will be our Lord, he's our Rabboni. We're saved. We are now wayfaring strangers on this earth. We're just passing through. And we know because he defeated death, he conquered the grave, we will too. And so when we die, we're going to heaven to a better place. And I'm telling you right now, church, that has serious implications for your Christian walk today. The resurrection has very serious implications. And when you start studying, you start thinking about how does this apply to me, how does the resurrection apply to me, that you're not tied to this earth anymore. You are just passing through. And so that should determine what you want to do on this earth. And sometimes we can just get off base, we can get off mark, and it's easy to do. I start thinking about all the things I wanna do when I retire or, or how much money I'm gonna have in the bank when I retire so I can sustain my family and my life and how much I can pass on to my kids and, and what do I wanna do as for a job so I can be happy and, and have a nice house and a car and all these things. I'm not saying that's bad in and of itself. I'm not saying you shouldn't plan for the future. I think you should but does it have to do with the kingdom of God? Does your plans have to do with the kingdom of God? The reason why you have that job has to do with the kingdom of God. Because you're dead to this world, right? And we're alive in Christ. One of my favorite theologians to quote is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And for a lot of you, you might know that name. Um, For some of you, it's your first time, but he was a theologian. Bible teacher, seminary professor in the 30s and 40s. And he was German. And he watched his country completely side with Hitler. And his country, including most of the church, completely sided with Hitler to eliminate the Jews and to kill anybody that comes into opposition with his regime. And Hundreds of thousands of these Germans were just flocking to Hitler because there was safety there, they thought. And they could care less about the Jew. And it got to the point where he had to make a determination that he's going to stand up against this regime. And at the same time, he's leading an underground seminary. And he's trying to teach these few pastors to understand the gospel, and as he's fleeing from the the German army, they're after him. He's writing this theology down. He's coming through, and he says, there's three things you must identify with Jesus. This is in his book, Ethics, one of his last books. He says, you must identify with his incarnation, that Jesus came, and he went in the middle of his enemies. He lived amongst us, You must identify with that, he says. You must identify with his crucifixion. As Jesus took the sins of the world upon himself, we in the same way will go like Jesus did and take the sins of our enemies, not that we have the ability to forgive, but if I can crucify myself, maybe I can win them as Christ had won us when we see his love. So you must put your own pleasures aside and somehow adopt pain in your life For the sake of winning another person to Christ, if need be. And then the resurrection. So the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. You're dead to this world. You're already alive in heaven. So what in the world are you afraid of? Who can come against you? Because you're alive in heaven. And that right there has serious implications on how I'm going to plan for my future and my life. And if somebody comes and says, you can't say this or you can't do this, or I'm going to treat this person this way, and if it's against the word of God, I'm going to stand up even to the point of crucifying myself because I know I'm going to be resurrected. And that's Christianity. And he formed that theology in the middle of all this murder that was happening within Germany. And he ends up getting hung two weeks before the war is over in a prison. He gets caught, and he gets hung for his faith. The resurrection has serious implications for us, church. And I need, let's all meditate upon the resurrection. If I know that Jesus Christ defeated the grave, and I I live with him, and I know that I'm going to defeat the grave because of his work on the cross, and God's power to raise him from the grave, how am I going to live this life? 24, now Thomas called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. So Thomas, the disciple Thomas, actually had a twin brother. And the other disciples, therefore, said to him, we have seen the Lord, Thomas. So he said to them, unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe he, he is a doubter. So that's where we get the word doubting Thomas. Is he bad to doubt? I don't think he, he, he's a necessarily a bad person. He's just, he needs to see proof of some form or fashion. And I'm sure he is going through his emotions at the same time. He's like, yeah, you guys have seen him. I haven't seen him. I just have to see this to believe it, Right? After 8 days his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them this time and Jesus came the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said peace be to you or peace to you and he said to Thomas reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put your put it into my side do not be beyond, be unbelieving do not be unbelieving believing and Thomas answered and said to him my Lord and my God and Jesus said to him Thomas because you have seen me you have believed blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed that's huge for us that's huge like you're blessed because you've seen this even though you were doubting you're now looking at my hands they have holes in them You've touched my side where I got stabbed with the spear and now you believe. And he was right here out of the gate, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, oh, blessed are those who don't see me and believe. And that's us. Like there's almost, a, if you will, a special blessing. If, if we can believe in Jesus without actually seeing him like Thomas saw him. Blessed are us. And that's a promise you can take. You're blessed by this. And I was sharing with this last night at the School of Discipleship. I teach through um, the New Testament survey. And we have all this whole account of Paul and his, from Acts 13 through Acts 28, and his crazy, crazy missionary journeys and how the church was started and planted and all this. And that's all we have. But we don't have a lot of the other disciples and what they were doing. But we do know this, church history tells us, that Thomas, after he believed, he believed so much, he took off and he made it as far as India and proclaimed the gospel there. We don't have that part in the book of Acts. I wish we had another account in the book of Acts of all the things that Thomas experienced and and he saw on his trip. We know in church history that the Assyrians, which are east of Jerusalem area, all all that area, the Assyrian people, they led one of the longest and largest missionary movements in church history. Not until around 630 or so AD did it cease. That's when the Muslims came and took them by force. We see that. All northern Africa, which is predominantly all Islamic, was reached until around 630 or so AD when the when the Muslims came and went through there as well and threatened them by force. Now you go there and it's pretty much predominantly Islamic. But that, there used to be Christians scattered all throughout northern, northern Africa. We don't have any of those accounts. And what Thomas, he was charged to go east. And he made it, they say, all the way to India. He believed. And he took the words, I send you. You need to go. And he went. And I love how this passage ends right here. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So he did so many signs that you couldn't even even write them in the book. The very last verse of this whole book says in uh, 21... 25, it says, and there are so many things, other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that not even the world itself could contain the books that were written, would be written. And he right here, he kind of says it again, and then he gives the thesis for the book of John. The main point of this writing was, but these are written, in verse 31 of chapter 20, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in His name. John wrote this letter in such a way to prove who Jesus was as Savior. He didn't write it as a biographical sketch. He wrote it to prove to you he's the Savior. And that's how we end in verse 20, that Jesus, or in chapter 20, verse 31, that the reason why I'm writing to you so you can believe that Jesus is the Savior. And we end with this tonight And as I read this, this passage of scripture, what I get from it is, I see an an amazing amount of worship, especially coming from Mary Magdalene. I see an amazing amount of excitement and anticipation coming from the disciples, John, the fastest Olympian in the time, and, and then Peter. I see belief, but I also see that the church was really under a lot of pressure and a lot of terror. At that time, it wasn't easy going, but they still believed. And Jesus chose to be crucified in the area where there was that much tension, to start the church under those conditions. You think he would probably go to some place that was really kind of mellow to get this thing kicked off. But no, he goes, and you see this even throughout the book of Acts. The gospel is usually planted in really, really, really tough places. Because when people accept the word of God in those, in those places, they truly believe it. And then you see the power of God go throughout. Nobody can stop it. And that's what brings people to Christ. Like how in the world can this thing right here exist under these conditions around you? And Jesus at this time, he, he, he came at this time where the tensions were as the highest. and planted the church and these group of weak people, these weak disciples... He walked with them for three years, the main disciples, 12 of them, then 11, after Judas. And they turned the world right side up after they were breathed on by Jesus, by salvation. I'm not going to talk about the first part of Acts when the Holy Spirit drops on them. That's for a couple of weeks from now. It's another part of the story. But I just see this. It's like, how did this religion of Christianity... Really, it looks weak to the world. How, did it, how is it the largest religion, if you will, in the world? How is it that a religion can take off? Under the conditions to where we were told if, if somebody slaps us on the cheek, turn the other. Or if somebody backstabs you, offer them it again for the sake of their soul. Go after them. Show them how much you love them. Who does that? How does anything start when somebody says, if their enemy tells you to take this thing one mile, take it two? Like, it's so radical. Christianity is so much different than anything else out there to offer. When I go around the world and I hang out with the Muslims, they're in such captivity. It's all about their works. And they don't even know if they're going to get to paradise or not. They don't. Until the day happens. We can have assurance. If we believe in the resurrection, we believe that Jesus came, we can have assurance of the, that we're going to be resurrected and be in heaven. And they don't even have that. And so they force people into it. When I study Islam, I study the Quran. It, you know, Jesus is mentioned over 100 times in the Quran. And he's the only perfect prophet in the Quran. I don't know if you knew that. He performs miracles. His mom is Mary, virgin birth. But the difference is, there's no crucifixion or resurrection. It says in the Quran, Allah would never allow his holy prophet to be crucified. It was someone else that looked like him. And they say the, the, the Islamic tradition that Jesus ascended, and he'll come back with the 12th imam and conquer the world. He, never, he was never crucified. They look at that as weak. And I look at that as the strongest thing I've ever seen somebody do. How in the world can you just sit there and say nothing and say forgive them for they don't know what they do? How much strength does that, take? does that take for anyone to do something like that? People look at it as weak, and it's the most heroic thing I've ever heard of or seen. And that's what makes Jesus so attractive. And if you don't know him, or if you have these misunderstandings of who Jesus is, hopefully this straightens it up. Hopefully this gives you an idea that, man, I have so much more to hope for because at the end of this life, I don't know what's out there, but you can know what's out there. And Jesus has gone. To heaven. He's preparing a place for us, the scripture says. And we can bank on that. And as He's resurrected and He's defeated death, we defeat death. And so we don't have that pressure. And you did nothing to deserve it. That's the wonderful thing, too. I don't have to work for it, all I have to do is believe. And out of my response of gratitude, I just naturally just want to worship Him. And that's what kind of relationship our Heavenly Father wants with us. But that only comes through Jesus, he says. Jesus said, in the way, the truth, the life, nobody comes to the Father except through me. The Muslims don't have that. The Buddhists don't have it. We have it. And we give it out freely. But today, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, he died for you and he rose again for us. He conquered death And there's nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. Absolutely nothing. It's a free gift. And one day we're going to be with him. That's the only thing that really makes sense to me when I think about it on this planet. It's the only thing that makes sense. What's all this for anyways? God wants a relationship with us. He has a plan for us. So if you don't know Jesus your first step is confessing to him that you're a sinner like I had to. I used to not think I was a sinner. I thought I was a good person. But then I started going through the law in the Old Testament and it really revealed to me that man, I'm a total sinner. And everyone is, the scripture says. And once you recognize that, then you know you're in need of a Savior and that's where Jesus, that's where he comes and so you just ask asking, please help me, forgive me of my sins. And I want to follow you. You're my Lord. You're my master. And I follow you all of my days of my life. And you believe in the resurrection. You believe he died. He rose again three days later. That's the gospel. And if you believe that, you've never believed that before. Today's your day. Today is your day. So come down. Somebody will pray with you. And there's some of us in here that have just been kind of tinkering around with our lives, and like just wandering around aimlessly, a little bit idle. Today's a new day. You can start over. His grace is new. His mercy is new. And so come down and we can pray. If there's anything else that you guys need prayer for, please come down. Today we're going to do communion. We do it every Wednesday. And it's a time for us as a church just to stop for a second.